dear friends, and welcome to our podcast dedicated to sight reading through the lens of the historically informed performance practice. My name is Darina Blogina. And I'm Sebastian And today we have a special episode dedicated to historical dancing. And we have some lovely guests here. Could you guys introduce yourself? I'm Moitza Gal, and I'm a violinist and a dancer. And I'm Christian Robardet, and I'm a French and German teacher and... For passion, I do some historical dances, sometimes with Moitza. But you are not only the dancer, but you also make clothes. I'm specializing in late 18th century sewing techniques, and I also read a lot the um, fashion magazines of the time. How did you come to this idea to recreate historical clothes? I think uh, in the beginning, um, I had a passion for historical dances. I did a lot of uh, late 16th century dances. And then I found out that most of people nowadays do more early 19th century dances. Um, and then I yeah, had to get proper clothing for these events. And then I started sewing because there was also a question about the price. Yes, it's cheaper to make them ourselves than, yeah. <laughs> and and there's a connection between the clothing and the dance, like they're very linked or... Moitza, what would, what's your opinion? <laughs> well, um, there is one thing, because what is Christian talking about is more this, um, about people who did for pleasure and they meet in historical surrounding, dressed in the period clothing, and they would if it's possible, you know, also including food and and uh, pastime, they have maybe they meet for a day or even two days or three days, or there, there is just a ball or maybe an empire picnic or something like that, or some kind of animation. And then this is kind of the whole pack, um, dance and music and social habits and, and proper clothing. And I'm working, uh, I'm a professional dancer and I'm working on theatrical dance. Um, and then there is a totally different setup. And there, on one side, I would, from my opinion, a theatrical professional ballet, even if it's 18th century, it does not need a pretty dress to work as an art form. It should be enough as an art form as such. Um, but of course, then some kind of aesthetics or movement is also the way it, it uh, evokes feelings it also speaks through the movement of the garment you wear. Um, and so it will necessarily have a different feeling and impression if you wear something that was a stage costume of 18th century than if you're just in a dance garb, you know, a kind of usual ballet dance garb. Um, but here are the stage clothing is like nowadays you know stage costume is a something different than everyday social dress and again in theater you would in my opinion you need the whole setting right you need um, the scenery and everything in order to this to to work as as a whole um, and if I dance in some very modern hall, I usually wear something that's dancing with me but it's not necessarily a period costume because otherwise I feel like a parrot. <laughs> I mean, in what way do you feel like a parrot? Well, to be dressed in something that's totally out of context. Okay. In some, uh, yeah. in, in a surrounding that aesthetically just not 
playing with it. You know, yeah. if you meet somebody that's trans, you know, dressed like a Louis XIV in a totally modern building, it's it's really a clash. Maybe you want that clash. Maybe that's the point. But um, yeah, it's 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 always a, a question for me. And then I tend often times to just dance in modern clothing when I have performances. But then it works in a different way. Some yeah, it's it's kind of a difficult topic <laughs> decision. Mm-hmm. And where can we see your performances? Um, most of my repertoire is at the moment on YouTube um, because I'm working with Canadian choreographer and dance historian Edmund Fairfax for two years. And we have filmed um, reconstructions and choreographies based on his research. And so that this is visible and accessible for a more international audience. So this is on YouTube on my channel. Um, and otherwise, I regularly dance with, um, for example, Ensemble Odyssey in the Netherlands a lot, or just next week I'm going to Slovenia, so, um, I'm, or sometimes Switzerland, just here and there. We will, of course, put a link to your YouTube channel in the description. Um, but maybe could you tell us more about the idea of these recreations that you make? What kind of dances? Well, really following the sources in the sense that stage dance meaning professional dance, is not what we see as a Baroque dance, which is based on ballroom and which is mainly walking to music. Ballroom dance is walking to music. And this is for the nobility, this is for the amateur dancers. Um, and it should be effortless and should be pretty, but you know, you should not get out of breath and, and so on as a show, social dancer. Whereas, of course, um, for a professional dancer, this is totally different setting. And uh, 18th century, it's so diverse. I mean, today we just know this kind of Baroque dance, which is one way of dancing. But if you open any type of source, it will tell you there is ballet and there is ballroom and they are different as water from wine. Um, in ballet, you dance professionally and you dice high, which means that your legs go high, that you jump, that you do pirouettes, that you do all... Uh, very demanding, very physically demanding, just like classical ballet nowadays, only the technique is different. Um, and ballroom dance would then be low, chamber, soft, and meant for somebody with non-professional technique. And stage dance had four styles. So it's four styles of 18th century ballet, and this is serious, half-serious, um, comic and grotesque. And I've so far done with him serious and half serious. And now we are just about to start some comic dancing. I don't think I will attempt grotesque because you really need an acrobat for that. And mm. I'm not. Um, <laughs> It's really challenging. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just just do three of the That's four. That's very intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, he's been a very, very challenging journey for the last two years. Um But it makes me very happy and it, it makes so much sense with the music in this way. It's so much more um, biomechanically logical. It's so much more sensual um, and it's, it's more close to, to the music and what you see, for example, in paintings. You know, it's not so confined and, and, and little and um, just fast, you know, many fast little steps. It's, it has a totally different quality to it. 
Yes, and so if we are talking about the ballroom uh, dance, which is not so demanding, don't need to be an acrobat. Um, so maybe you could tell us more about your Verein that you're leading. It's called Les Soirées Amusantes, uh, inspired by two contredances françaises that are named Les Soirées Amusantes. There are also histories, a, a, a recueil de contes, which is called Les Soirées Amusantes. And there is also another manual Uh, for social games that is called Les Soirées Amusantes. And mm. so this source that you mentioned before about the games, how does it function? Um, it's mostly based on um, playing with words. It's uh, an intellectual challenge sometimes. Could You're you playing, give us for instance, with the letters of, uh, for, uh, of the alphabet. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to form uh, a certain sentence Um, keeping all uh, all the time the same structure, but always, for instance, beginning with the letter A, and then everyone that has joined the circle of the players has to to propose a sentence um, following the same structure with A. The challenge is that everyone suggests another version of a sentence, always replacing the words. So sometimes it's very difficult because when you have, I don't, I can't, I'm not sure whether I can rec recollect exactly this. It's, um, j'aime mon amante par A. And then you have to, yeah, make different sentences with A. So you have to specify, um, the flowers and other things. And everything has to begin with an A. And when you have the flowers, for instance, it's very, very difficult sometimes <laughs> to find a, a flower beginning with, I don't know, with the Z or, or with <laughs> other letters. And of course, it's very funny. And when you, when you, for instance, when you, when you happen to reproduce a word that already has been said, then you're punished because you, then you have to give a gage. <laughs> and, um, and, and I mean, you have several, several, games the, of this type and it's very, really funny because yeah I, you have also to have a good memory because when you yeah right, when you can't uh, remember what uh, someone else has already said then you risk to be punished yes so les soirées amusantes was actually used as like a a guideline for evenings like spent with people this book yes, yes. i sent you once uh, a, a little sequence Uh, about violin and play oh, yes, the, yes, the yes. play of violin and <laughs> um, the whole manual is set up like a piece of theater you have so, so many dialogues so that this, there is a whole society spending their time uh, in a chateau in the countryside and uh, mainly very very young people so they have they are 15 years old or 16 years old. They're also um, abbé, so the clerical mm -hmm. people, and also elderly people, so the parents of these young men and, and women. And there are also some conflicts coming up between the parents because, yes, they don't really enjoy this kind of game. They would prefer playing cards or playing, playing, mu making, playing music. And so you learn so many things through these dialogues because it's not only by because through these dialogues you have the explanations of the of the of the games because yes there is no theoretical explanation there's it's all about um, illustrating practically the, the how how they work what year is it from uh, it, the first edition dates from 1788 i think 
Well, it's very interesting because you take you're reading about like social practices, actually, like social yeah, conventions. Um, yeah. Does that apply to the work that you're doing, like your dance, your your costuming, yeah. Your, yeah. all of it? It's all about context, actually. And um, when you when you when you want to dance this this repertoire, then you have to complete the sources. When you have, for instance, a manuscript, then you really have to um, to read other other sources that complete the the lacune, the lacks that that you have, and also about conventions at this time, the politesse or the rituals accompanying the dances. Um, you can read um, some masters' treaties, uh, but you really have to know it ideally all of them so that you can really complete the information. This relates to a question I wanted to ask about actually in music, because I think musicians often we, you know, we read the treatises of music, right? Mm -hmm. Or we read Couperin and we read this and that. Um, and we were talking about this, you know, you were saying that um, if you have Louis XIV, someone dressed as Louis XIV in this modern building, it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. And it's the same in, for example, I see it a lot in period films, where you have the costumes, you have the castle, you have everything, but you can't believe the actors because mm -hmm. they're they're missing the one quality, yeah. mm -hmm. um, which is like, you know, the gesture and the, the raffinement, the refinement of everything. Mm -hmm. How do you think that applies in a musical setting? Or does it apply in a musical setting? What are we missing? <laughs> no, it, it, it goes a bit critical, maybe. But um, <laughs> for me, the main problem, and this goes to music or dance, really, um, very often we do not realize how much of our own times we actually imply into 18th century. Um, and we have such a hectic way, a life. We have so much stress. We want instant recipes. And, and another thing, we want the things to be uniform, so that when we meet, we just need half of a rehearsal and then we hop on stage, you know. So, and this only, uh, well, of course, it's based on the lack of money, the cultural sector, and now we could expand the subject, right? Um, it's understandable. But of course, if you have a set of conventions of how one plays, then it's easier to put something together unless you have an ensemble where you play with each other already 10 years. Um, and so we want this set of conventions and which creates a huge uniformity in art. And so we refer to the Baroque style or the Baroque dance. There is not just such thing, to be honest, because um, if you look into the 18th century sources, there is such a diversity. Um, also, in when it comes to dance, um, I've already mentioned we, we refer to one Baroque dance. This is the way how one danced. And this is totally anachronistic with 18th century. Um, I've been talking about the styles but even for the ballet dancers, there is one lovely review in, in a newspaper of one young dancer who was presented in the opera in the Paris. And the, um, um, the person writing the review said, oh, she does this and that really well and has an agreeable appearance. But she is too much like the other who was presented two days ago. And, and so, you know, she is too much like the other. That's mind-blowing. And today you can't recognize the second swan from the left, from the third swan from the right, if you go to see the ballet. 
Um, and so this diversity, this individuality, um, this is missing. And we, <laughs> I'm a bit courageous to say that, but we do have a bit of um, trauma with sensuality in our society. Um, you know, the art gets very quickly into kind of tasteless, soft porn on stage. But also if you kind of put handle or something. And this type of, of um, presentation has nothing to do with the work. But at the same time, we are so much afraid of something that's beautiful, something that's really felt. You know, it's like a piece of dark chocolate melting on, on your mouth. And this applies to music. It applies to dance. Um, because, for example, the serious style was, was really described as soft and languid and voluptuous, where every step has to have its beauty. It's nothing rushed there. It's nothing uh, motoric there. It's nothing computer-like there. It's very, very sensual, but in a, but in a very good way, um, in a very healthy way. <laughs> so it's, it's essential, uh, just to make it clear, I mean what is perceived with the senses. Then we come to realization of so-called performance practice when we refer to instant recipes and we don't give ourselves permission to experiment and to ornament um, and to not play what's written. We refer to urtext, which is another anachronistic thing to 18th century. So, yeah, I think it's much, much, much to, to discover and not just to rely to some cliches from the past 30, 40 years. which is a contredance um, from Gallini, who was it, an Italian that um, was trained in Paris, I think. Do you know something about him? And then he immigrated to England, where he married a very wealthy woman. And um, he published this recueil, how is it called? Um, critical observation on the art of dancing, but he's focusing mainly uh, on, on the cotillions. They are called cotillions in England, but uh, contredance française in, in, in France. And um, the La Belle Veuve is one of those 
cotillions. And you played also um, La Mignonette Française, um, which is also a cotillion. please nine entrees so you have to play the whole cotillion nine times with nine entrees and with followed by their refrain so it lasts about 20 minutes or yes or 15 minutes yeah and you said um Moisa, yeah the, the, these dances are not really exhaust exhausting but i don't perfectly agree of course you cannot compare The, our physical efforts to yours. This is well, my that's dance, not my that's dance not is up to two minutes. When you keep on dancing a cotillion during 20 minutes, then you need afterwards. You really need your your sorbet to have some refreshment or or have your champagne or whatever. Or usually we don't really dance all the nine entrees because it's a little bit tedious, maybe, but. Back then, I think they really did it. And um, when you have several hours um, at your disposal for the, for the ball, and when you have on the program more than 10 dances, then, yeah, then you want to, to enjoy what you've learned because you also have to organize rehearsals. And I brought with me one source which is um, Austrian. This is the diary of Joachim Ferdinand von Schiedhofen, who writes down on a daily basis what he did. Yes, you learn a lot about dances also. And sometimes he even uh, mentions the name of the contredance uh, or the, the English country dances that he learned. And you can discover that they really prepared themselves um, when they attended a ball. That was it for the cotillions, the dates um, back to the 1770s. And for la guillotine, which is a contredance tardive, um, you don't have the, the entrees anymore. Because at a certain time, um, at the latest, uh, at the beginning or in the beginning of the 1790s, 
um, the entrees became um, out of fashion. And then you uh, had only a refrain for the whole um, dance. And also there was a simplification in the sense that um, there was um, the interaction between the eight dancers that um, compose, or how do you say, compose a, a contredance or a cotillion. There are mainly eight um, participants. Uh, the interaction is restricted to four dancers at once, normally. Uh, whereas in the earlier contredance, um, the interaction is much, comp much, much more complex. Um, all of the eight pers uh, people are really implied. La, la guillotine sometimes is, is um, a cotillion or contredance where you have mainly two person, two people at once that are uh, dancing and the others are spectators and then the role change. La guillotine. Um, why are you laughing? This is not funny at all. Because the music is uh -huh. quite. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a cheap know. title. In yeah, exactly. It's quite macabre. And um, yes, the, the the guillotine was published when in 1792. Did you dance this dance or? Uh, not yet. I don't really. I, I'm not that fond of the of. The later cotillions uh, or contredance, because there is, um, in terms of figures, not really in terms of steps, but in ter terms of figure, there you can uh, observe a simplification. Moise, you were talking about this adagio uh, the, with the written out ornaments. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could tell us more about that. This goes a bit back to my work, because when I started to work with Edmund Fairfax, then suddenly the tempi I was dancing on were twice as slow than they usually played because there is a cliche that dance music is always played fast and short and, or, and without ornaments, <laughs> uh, mainly. Um, and there is, a, for example, an internet recording of the same dance, which is, I think, a 98 metron per beat, and I dance it on 54, and it's not possible to dance it faster, but the reconstruction is different. And then, of course, for me, it was a little bit of a surprise. And, and I started to read a lot. And I started to read 
um, everything that I have not taken into account before or I have overseen or I haven't really thought about. And I have found so, so many uh, testimonies about how slow the French liked to play. How sustained, and, and they're also criticized for that. You know, that it's boring and it's, it's, it's a slow and sustained air, you know, and also in the opera for the wretcheds. Um, and there's so many testimonies about that, which is quite contrary to what we do today, right? Because today we ignore all the slow tempo in French music. We always play them a kind of a dancey manner, which means in one, especially if it's, if it's a three, four or something. But I really realize there is such a range and there is no historic evidence to say that if the French write gravement, they mean andante, you know? Um, but this is what we are doing today. We accept the thing that, for example, uh, there is a metronome marking for an eight note of 50 in an Italian style. And it is, we are fine with that. And then it comes to French music and it's marked as adage or largo or grave and we play double as fast. Adage or this um, Dans l'aimable vainqueur, which was published in the collection of um, Bartolome Ferrioli in Malaga in 1745. Um, and it's, however, it's ballroom dance now, it's not theatrical, but still. And he provides music with the choreography. And it's a written out adage. It's like um, maybe Bender or something. Kvans. Or Kvans. Yeah, it's in this style, um, which really means. A, that he writes it's a largo, so it's really slow. And it also confirms that a musician, if it's adagio or grave or largo, should play an adagio. Means should play slow and should play ornament, ornaments and everything. Um, if this is in a chamber music setting, of course, if you have an orchestra, then you have a different performance practice. But um, this, for me, really confirmed my assumptions that actually dance music is still music. Um, I mean, you are supposed to use the same performance practice then for anything else you play. And it will, it will depend on the context, on, on the ensemble and, and everything, but it's, it's not excluded from the performance practice. Band. Yeah, really. <laughs> I was thinking, oh yes, all of these are very slow tempi. 
And then we have these pendulum markings, right? Like, you know, these, and some of them are like super fast. Like, no. You think that it's, it's, it's one vibration is two or what, <laughs> what happens? So I'm talking about, sorry, um, the French sort of in the, I guess, when was it? Mid 18th century? There are several examples, but anyways, there, um, there is this pendulum and how to build the pendulum, right? And basically it's just, a pendulum, like on a clock. That we right? have at the Scola, I think. We have one at the Scola. And, you know, it's marked in, like, sexes, I think. And then you can, you know, pin... You, you change the length of the string for the pendulum to swing. And there's a lot of sources, or quite a few, at least, sources. A few, I don't know. That that actually give um, pendulum swings for dances. What do you, You're nodding your head, though. Well, um, first of all, there are different interpretations of this. And we have several systems. And the problem is we don't really know how to transform that numbers from back then. They're so um, difficult to interpret. So much so that we have Gerold, which has so much slower tempi than the tempi we usually believe. And this would be uh, in publishing the Mealing um, big tempo book. And these, these somehow just, they just set through. And now we take for granted that these are correct. But Gerold came through calculations to a totally different result. I would now rather leave the question aside um, of whether the first or the second gentleman was correct in the calculations. Because ultimately, I believe this is rather irrelevant. Already from the side of the dance, for example, um, Quanz is saying that the orchestra should follow the dancer because he or she um, has to strain the whole body to dance. And already here we might have, for example, two dancers dancing the same dance form um, in the same style, but they might have had different strengths. And so one might have been jumping higher, and so he or she will require a slower tempo than the other one, who would maybe wish a different tempo to show off um, his strengths in a different way. And, but if we come back to the music, um, somehow we are, you know, inclined to believe that the French were the metronome inventors and that they would, um, contrary to the Italians, they would use no rubato and they would all play the same uniform tempi by their metronome devices. But actually what um, the treatises that discuss those um, tempo measuring devices tell us is that, um, like, for example, L'Abbé Soumillé, uh, among 50 music masters, not even two would play the same tempo. And that one would spend a week discussing correct tempi and not come to a conclusion. And those tempo measuring devices, they're documented as a help for amateurs and not as a help for music masters because they would anyway do what they want and two musicians would not um, play the same tempo anyway. And this is happening from 700 to 1800. Um, even Gretry says, oh, I was asked to invent something to fix the tempo because everybody plays what he pleases. You know, what did he invent? Um, I, th I I think he didn't really invent, but he was dealing with problems of choirs being in the wing and not seeing the batteur de mesure and so on. Is it La Filar? There's another 
treatise uh, where he says he discusses the tempo a long, long time. And at the end, he says, um, well, anyway, tempo markings are unreliable and anyway, professional musicians do what they like. So at the end, the reader can forget all my discussion, just play the tempo, it suits him. <laughs> Very typical end of a discussion in a treatise, always the same. Yeah, so, <laughs> do whatever you want. So, yes, yeah. it's uh, we are so fixed in these metronome markings and then we take them for granted. But uh, many ways that he's dancing in a ballroom will not have the same tempo if he's dancing in serious style or in half serious style because it's totally different characteristics and then it has a different tempo. Um, and this is the diversity we are having problems to accept, I think, because it opens possibilities. Room for interpretation. Exactly. Um, and so perhaps more discussions for new rehearsals. <laughs> um, well, we have only half an hour <laughs> before we are hoping to <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there is another thing we, for many of these metro markings, we don't have the choreography. So we have no idea what happened. Um, and, and this is another problem because a bourrée is never a bourrée. And this is also documented, for example, Gottfried Taubert will say, if you dance a menuet in the ballroom, you will use a so-called menuet step. But if you dance it on stage, there are no menuet steps, none whatsoever. You use high steps, um, which take more time, so the tempo will be slower. And it's totally different characteristics. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole new world. <laughs> but uh, it's a bit the same problem with diminutions in the 16th century. The more you embellish, the slower tempo you need to perform all of these beauties. I like taking the dancers for this reason, because they always have more nuanced opinions of tempo than, than musicians, actually. Music, and, like Musicians, we always think, oh, has to be regular, has to be the same, blah, blah, blah. And dancers say, come and say, absolutely not. I can't move that fast. <laughs> It was a very interesting discussion leading to music at the end with Tempi, which is very important yes. for us to reflect on that subject. I can find a dancer. Talk to yes, please find your friend okay. dancer. Okay.